Uh, before we get into the sports thing, though, I've been reading your the book. So those watching on TV or the ESPN MT app, the, the book is called This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Community in the Age of Heat. Justin and Nick Mott uh, co-authored this thing. Uh, it's incredibly uh, informative and, and interesting. Uh, but I just got done with the uh, the burning section. Sure. Uh, which is all about just sort of the, the, the recent history of fire in America mm-hmm. and how we managed fire or lack thereof or incessantly managed it for basically the duration of the 20th century. I just find it so fascinating how much influence... I mean, first of all, we take it for granted because we live in 21st century America... But fire is one of the most essential parts of like, humanity, right? I mean, this is how Homo sapiens became civilized, partly because of, of fire. That part's interesting, too. But then you look at the, the modern-day influences on government and policies and all of it. You guys did a great job of putting that in perspective. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, this is a great place to do this kind of work because sure. there's so many people working at the tip of the spear in fire, whether it's folks with the Forest Service uh, fighting fires, fire scientists, folks at the College of Forestry and Conservation at the University of Montana. Um, some of the most elite work in wildfires happening right here in Missoula. The uh, All the influence on on different government policies. I found that yeah. so fascinating. Would, would any of that surprise you or would you just think of just researching all that and sort of learning about it? Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, looking at the history of how, you know, coming from the Big Burn in 1910 and the response to that by the fledgling Forest Service was to, we have, we have to put out all fires. Right. And a lot of folks don't know that the Forest Service is um, housed within the Department of Agriculture. Sure. And the Department of Agriculture, you know, trees are a crop and they're conceptualized to be managed for yield and board feet per year and all these sorts of metrics. And so protecting that crop is is an important function of the Forest Service. Now, there's a lot more nuance to it than that, but you can see how in the early part of the, of the 20th century that this full suppression policy took hold. And then all of the downstream consequences of that, not only the ecological consequences, but also the the sort of military-style apparatus that we've built for fighting fire very effectively. Um, Even if you want to unwind that a little bit, it becomes very difficult. The... um the example of the sequoia trees, I thought that was an awesome one. Because sequoias are these just majestic... Uh, I mean, I th- I think of trees as creatures more than plants, but there, there was this sort of deficit in sequoia trees because fire is how they spread their seed, and we just didn't realize that. And then once we did, it, it sort of altered the way we think about it. That's this. right. They have a cone that has evolved to be resilient to fire and only can release its seeds. The coating on the cone will melt and allow the cone to release its seeds when it's exposed to uh, a low-intensity fire. Now, the flip side of that, though, is a lot of the high-intensity fires that we're experiencing now are are more intense than what we've experienced sure. historically. Right. So that kind of disrupts that cycle because it can take, and instead of allowing a seed to germinate and and release from a cone, it can just vaporize not only the cone, but the soil, and then nothing's going to plant. The other uh, fun part about this was the, this the little one-pager on the origins of Smokey the Bear. Oh, yeah. It, it's so funny. You, you take certain things just as for granted. You don't ever think of how did Smokey the Bear come about, yep. right? Like, how did the, 
the icon of Santa Claus come about. You know, studying that sort of history is so interesting. But then you you read this. I mean, it's the longest running public service ad campaign in the in American history. It is, yeah, really successful and top of mind for many folks. When they, I mean, when you see that bear, you you know immediately, and you, I mean, I conjure the phrase: "Only you can prevent forest fires." Uh, not only is it an enduring uh, branding of the Forest Service, but tremendously powerful. Um, propaganda campaign in many ways. Absolutely. That's the other part that's so striking is you guys don't, you're not going after the, the, the accusation that a lot of this is propaganda driven, but there is just some history about the propaganda around sure. wildfire. I mean, for example, the part about World War II when they were saying, hey, let's prevent forest fires so we can defeat the enemy. I, that, that's a very interesting fold in this as well. Yeah, trying to wrap so much of it into patriotism. And a lot yes. of it was part of the cultural ethic of that early part of the 20th century when we thought that we could sort of bend the natural world to our will. Right, and better living right. through science and all these things. We just thought that all these things were within our control and that it was our... Um, yeah, that, that it was sort of by design that our society was evolving in such a way that it could control these these parts of the natural world and bend them to our will. And I'm glad that we had sort of a, 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 the opposite reaction to this, at least in certain ways. I mean, imagine a world without predators or, I mean, there was yeah. a moment in time where there was initiatives to basically kill off all the animals. Sure. I'm, I'm so glad that didn't uh, continue because, I mean, ruining, regardless, somehow, like, the environment has become a political issue. It shouldn't be. It's very cut and dry. The biodiversity of the planet is a very important thing for the planet to exist in harmony with the things that live on the planet. It's as simple as that. And so I'm glad we've, we've uh, at least got away from that a little bit. Yeah, it does make you wonder, though, like, how many things do we accept as just mm. bedrock default assumptions of our society right now that Absolutely. are completely misguided? I mean, I think an example of one thing we're trying, we're starting to maybe live through is, um, you know, these devices that we seem tethered to Absolutely. at all times. I mean, maybe we're going to find out that, hey, these things aren't so good. <laughs> it's not so good to be carrying around a device that you're addicted to. And what does that do to disrupt your neurochemistry and your mental health and all that sort of thing. Um, and there's probably all kinds of other examples of misnomers in our society. That's the craziest thing is I, I love to read. I love learning about it, all of these different things. But then sometimes when you learn, it like it bends your brain a little bit. What have, what have I believed that, that I just learned about that I no longer believe? I never forget when I read The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael mm. Pollan. Yeah. And it's about a lot of different things. But one of the primary things it's about is about the subsidization and creation of the corn industry and the way that the economics and business behind that has been manipulated over the last 100 years and then all the side effects from that. It's it's pretty crazy to study. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes that I tell students is from Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher, and that is, you can't learn what you already know. Mm, very good. Justin Engel in studio. The book, This is Wildfire. Uh, go check it out. It's available on bookshelves everywhere. Um, it's... I, I'm interested to get to the, the second part of it all, just this is kind of about how to protect yourself and all the solutions for your home and community and all that sort of stuff. But uh, if for anything else, you should at least just read the first part of this because the history of fire is definitely a part of the uh, the history of humanity. So what was, last thing on this, what was, the, what was your favorite part about writing this? Uh, favorite part was definitely the collaboration with Nick. That's yeah. been from the start. We made Fireline together along with Victor Ivez, and it's a collaboration that just um, we just worked well together from the start. We could give each other feedback in a direct, honest way that was non-threatening. It was always helpful, and we just had had a great rhythm. 
and you know um, our styles complement each other. And plus, you know, I, I have a, such respect for what you do as a journalist, and that's a methodology that I'm I was not trained in. Sure. And so to learn about how journalists do their work and approach uh, knowledge generation and discovery, that was awesome for me and learning from Nick was a tremendous experience. Well, awesome, man. And uh, everybody should go check this book out because I think it's important. You can also listen to the Fireline podcast, which Justin and uh, Nick Mott also, uh, they won an Edward R. Murrow Award for, so uh, pretty cool. Uh, the Business Angle presented by Blackfoot Communications. Visit goblackfoot.com for any and all of your uh, home networking, small business, home office, any sort of networking needs. Goblackfoot.com. Um the NCAA Division One Council met last week, and uh, <laughs> it's not related to inflation, but inflation's a key topic in America right now. But talk about jacking up the prices. You still used to only cost five thousand dollars to apply to be an FBS candidate. Now it costs yeah. five million dollars. Just your general thoughts on uh, this phenomenon? Well, a couple thoughts there. One. Um it might be just a mechanism for the NCAA to say, you know, enough. We have enough schools in the FBS. Sure. We don't want any more. Like this, there's saturation in this marketplace. Yep. We're already seeing fractures happening on so many levels. We've talked about conference realignment in so many ways. We've talked about whether or not the NCAA can hold power, um, whether or not the major like SEC schools will secede and, and do something. So I think the NCAA is, is, is fearful of dilution, right? And so to create a price that's prohibitive to gain entry is one mechanism to, to eliminate entry. Another piece of it, too, is that you know, it's hard to think of it as a revenue generator, right? Right. But, but maybe there is such demand for some schools to make that leap that the NCAA can just extract a fee, a tax from them. I, I don't really know the sort of financial health of the NCAA as an institution. Right. Um, if that's what they're thinking of as a strategy to generate revenue, it seems a little desperate to me. Um, but either way, it's it's sort of a, a bit of a head-scratcher to me. Yeah, I, I, well, see, when, I, when this first came down, I thought to myself, okay, for the, the schools that we talk about frequently as potentially making this move, these state institutions in isolated rural states like Montana and yeah. North and South Dakota, I do think that there's always going to be a question of if you want to move up, where does the money come from? But having to come up with more money, you're going to have to come up with a whole plan to have a whole bunch more money at, at your disposal no matter what. Yeah. So I think that if that was ever a reality for the Montana schools and the Dakotas, I think they would find a way to find that money. What I thought this was targeted as specifically is the state of Texas and other schools in that football crazy region. As of right now, I think there's 14 FBS football programs in Texas. Wow. Texas used to have great FCS football. Now everybody's bailing on it because they want to have the FBS moniker. They want to have the FBS dollars. Sure. You can get the FBS TV money, even if you're disaligning with Tarleton State and Texas State and whatever else yeah. you might figure out. I mean, Sam Houston State's a great example. They've been good on, on the football field for sure over the last 10 years. You go to a game at Sam Houston, I mean, it's somewhere between... Watch the Grizzly Stadium and a high school stadium. Like it is, there's nothing, nothing FBS special. about it. Huntsville yeah. is not like some crazy draw, and yet they, they're making the move because they could at that moment. They were able to strike while the iron's hot. I think it's to deter schools like that that are just making the jump 
because of the the region that they're located in. Uh, yeah, I see some possibility there. I still get concerned about the saturation issue. Right. right? And, and so that, that, I mean, I think our, our points align there, whether it's in a micro market or, or in a broader sense. I mean, there can only be so many bowls that are worth watching. Right. Right. And Don't tell that to the crazy people that watch all 40 of them, but well, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think as we're seeing, like, the bowls don't really mean anything right. anymore. And so as we expand the playoff, it's sort of this slow dilution of what bowls mean. And then we see sort of the implosion of the Pac-12, like the Rose Bowl is not going to really mean anything in the historical sense. It'll still carry some brand value, but that brand value is is hugely diluted. And so you get more teams in, it's going to create more opportunities for bowl games and sponsors and all that. But I, I think, you know, as we're seeing in the streaming industry and with the decline of the cable bundle, there's just an oversupply in the marketplace, right? And there's going to be less money. So this could be a, a deterrent that the NCAA is putting on schools to just say, hey, you know, we need to sort of slow this down because the, the, the music is going to stop pretty soon and the, there's not enough chairs to go around. So how do you balance this? Because I, I do think on one hand, you're absolutely right, where there is going to be less seats at the table. Yeah. And we're already seeing that with a lot of the decisions that are being made. For example, Learfield, Learfield Sports, which is one of the great uh, uh, juggernauts when it comes to third-party marketing. For those unfamiliar, Learfield basically has a conglomeration of over 200 Division I schools, and they sell the advertising for those schools. The huge advantage of Learfield is they can go to huge corporate partners, you know, like a Coke or a Chevy or, or whoever it might be, and they can say, hey, you buy this big multi-million dollar advertising package from us, we can get you on the scoreboard and the the wall and in the program and on the radio and on the TV for every Division One school yep. in the country. Okay, And then, you know, that also gives a, an opportunity for a school like Montana to get a couple million dollars and a guarantee that really helps boost their budget. But what's Learfield's, uh, what is their engagement and interest going to be in schools like Montana and North Dakota State if all they need is these 55 or 60 schools over here because that's going to be 85% of the college football watching public? That, I guess my question for you, though, is if most people are only watching the Power Five, sure. but there's still this maybe not that great of a population, but audience for everything else. How do you kind of balance those two things? It's not an uncommon dynamic in business. Oftentimes mm, right. you get 80% of your revenue from 20% of your customers or, right. or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, however, like the only way to grow is to, you know, sell the same thing to new people to sell the more of the same thing to existing people or to sell something different to to either of those groups of customers, right? The easiest way is to try to find, well, the easiest way is to sell stuff to existing customers, but we're seeing right. that that's at a saturation point. So if you're Learfield and you have to grow, you have to, even though it's a small percent of your revenue, in order to grow, you still have to find those new customers and serve those new markets. So, I mean... The finances of it actually make some sense. Yeah, it's it's just going to be interesting to me because you know Learfield aside, I think that uh, at the same time, more and more people are going to care less and less about small school college football oh, because yeah. everybody's going to be in the same four conferences. Sure. Yet the people that really care about small school college football 
are going to care about it more because all of a sudden it's like even more of a novelty, so to speak. Yeah, and I think like it'll be interesting to see how those programs make decisions with how they package yes. their offer and yep. how they manage their revenue streams. A school like Montana, for we have this stadium that drives so much of the, the revenue. Totally. Right? And TV's not really a significant revenue stream. I no. think in the di- in, in in this landscape that you describe, it's going to behoove these programs to develop facilities that attract people and to create an on-the-ground live experience that is compelling because not only is it going to be hard to find on some television service, although you might be able to get a streaming service, um, it's going to be expensive to serve a small number of customers with that channel. And the product experience probably not going to be that great because you're either going to have to pay the, for, through the roof for it or just get something that's poor quality. The business angle, Justin Angle, in studio with us here uh, on Nuanas Now. When it comes to what's going on with football in the West, the University of Washington, not Washington State or Oregon State. I had to reread this a couple times because yeah. I was like, huh? The University of Washington filed a motion to intervene in the Whitman County Superior Court on Monday seeking to join the lawsuit by Washington State and Oregon State against the Pac-12 and its commissioner. Why would they want to do that? Well, if granted the motion would pave the way for Washington to file then a motion to dismiss this lawsuit, which neither the school nor the nine other departing Pac-12 universities currently has the authority to do while not being a party to the lawsuit. Man, you talk about rivalries going crazy. If you're Washington State and Washington, if you're Washington State, you're like, man, get out of here, Washington. This is a a crazy move by the Huskies. Um, It makes some sense from a business standpoint, right? So what appears to be at stake is this $47 billion in, sorry, $47 million in holdings that the right. Pac-12 has. And then right? there's another there's another somewhat between 50 and 60 million that exists because of NCAA tournament stuff. There's there's upwards of maybe $100 million that's kind of on yeah. the line And here. these are assets that if the conference dissolves will be distributed. If it doesn't dissolve, it could be presumably up to Oregon State and Washington State to divvy those assets up or spend sure. them however they want. And so for the remaining schools, you know, that's money that they could have a claim to. It's certainly money that they participated in the generation True. of, right? And so for Washington to make this move, one, they're the only of the schools that could do it because they're the only school that is in the state of Washington where, right. the, tri- where the case is being filed. Totally. And the only way that they can get into this conversation is to become a party to the lawsuit, in which case then if they are named a party to the lawsuit, they have the right to file the motion to dismiss. It seems like the sort of thing that is just headed to some sort of a settlement. Right. Right. The parties are all going to get together and say, this is how we got to divvy up these assets. And, you know, there'll probably be some non-disclosure agreement or something, but it just seems, it seems uh, inconceivable to me that um, Washington State and Oregon State are going to walk away with all the cash here. It's going to have to get spread around. At the very least, they're going to have to rebuild the Pac-12 and then they're going to have to share it with a whole bunch of new members. But as you're saying, I never thought of it like that. All the teams that help, all the the schools that helped build this nest egg are not just going to walk away without any of their money. Yeah, it's an interesting test case because we've talked in this in this segment about you know the relegation model happening, and Oregon State and Washington State are high quality 
football programs, yep. at least right now. Right now they are. And so, yeah. and so the, the, the notion of them getting relegated um, doesn't really make sense in the traditional say, uh, uh, scope. But in this conversation, we're always talking about teams moving up into more prestigious conferences, mm. right? It, it can't only work in that direction. So this notion of rebuilding the Pac-12, I find it a little bit far-fetched that two schools probably the two schools in the conference with the least media draw yes. will have the ability to like reconstitute a new conference. It seems more likely that they're going to have to find a new home themselves. I think that that's probably uh, the way that it's going to go. Uh, one last question for you. University of Montana plays at the University of Idaho mm-hmm. Saturday night in Moscow. That's a, a It's on ESPN2, so it's a national TV game. I think that's great for the league. It's certainly great for Idaho to have the Kibbe Dome sold out for the first time, I think, since they came back to the big sky. That's going to be on national TV. It's sort of a a funky and unique arena, so I think that's good for their branding because it just doesn't look like a lot of other places. For the Grizz, though, what do you think of this? I I guess, does the success or lack thereof for the Grizz in this football game impact the exposure they're going to get, or is it an objective win for the Grizz just being on national TV? Depends on. I mean, if you look at it from a brand awareness standpoint, it's it's a win it's for good. the Grizz. Yeah. They yep. get not only the exposure during the game, but they get the opportunity to run media spots. Sure. And you know, our, our branding and marketing has improved, and we're able to tell totally. some compelling stories. And the, the commercials and, are really good, and probably one, at least one of those will land on the ESPN two broadcast. You'd think exactly. So if you're looking at trying to get more students interested in the University of Montana, I think I think it's a win. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, we're at the point where the quality of the product on the field matters. Yep. And particularly against a team like Idaho, that people don't have a lot of existing brand associations with. People are going to assume it's a big rivalry. Like, people not familiar no, no with the Big Sky and the, you know, MSU, Monta- University of Montana rivalry are just going to assume that Montana-Idaho is a big rivalry. Well, and, and, and when you go back in the annals, it, it is. I mean, it's the, sure. second, it's the second oldest rivalry in the Big Sky. It's been going longer than any other one besides the, the Cacarys rivalry. I think this is meeting 88 between these teams. They have a trophy, so, you know, there's some stuff there. It's a thing, and there's storytelling about it, and there's a winner and a loser. Yep. Right, and so you know, while the from the exposure standpoint, it's it's upside for the Grizz. I do think you know there has to be a good product on the field. I think that the the fact there's a trophy, I think it makes just the the common person that might just be switching through. Sure, yeah, because you're like, oh, well, they have a trophy, and there's there's results for a hundred years on there. Okay, I'll watch this. It makes sense. You can tell <laughs> some story about it. And I can I can see all the you know the production crews and making I'm, a scene about it. And I'm sure they'll play it up. You know, the winning coach is going to drink a beer out of the mug, sure. and you know yeah, whatever we throw potatoes at each other, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. And then we'll all seem like rubes that live in Missoula and uh, Moscow. Here we are. But Pretty I, much, I think it's good. Though I, I agree with you. I do think that p- performing well would her- help the the University of Montana brand even more, but I do think it's it's just good for the, the league to have this rivalry on TV. Yeah. Business Angle, Justin Angle, presented by Blackfoot Communications. Uh, go check out the book. This is Wildfire. Anything new coming up on the uh, the Business Angle? Oh, okay. on, on a new or, excuse angle? Excuse me, a new angle. I always do that. This is the Business Angle. A new angle podcast is Justin's other awesome podcast that he's a part of. Yeah, this week we have Molly Krukenberg of the Montana Historical Society mm, talking cool. about the amazing facility they're building in Helena. It's going to be about 166,000 square foot oh, facility. Man. And then next week, uh, you might be interested in this, and sports fans, we 
we have Sean Radley of MTCX, and he's talking about oh, cool. the incredible uh, cyclocross racing that's going to be happening over the next month or so here in Montana. There's a race locally called uh, Rolling Thunder. It's sort of a, a, a long-running tradition that a ton of folks can get involved in. And then in early November, the Pan-American Championships yeah. are going to be here. And this is a huge deal for Montana. Some of the world's best cyclocross racers are going to be here. That's super cool. And you've probably been hearing the advertising on the radio because they've run, they're running a bunch of spots on ESPN and the trail uh, and Jack FM. So, uh, but I mean, this is a big deal. It's like a world-class event that's yeah, coming to Missoula. the best so. in the world. Yep. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, thanks for being here, man. Good Thank to see you. Ya. Thanks for pubbing the book. Of course, man.